Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Mael Ray Reyes, and he is the president of MI Real Estate and has been actively investing in residential real estate since 2005 and has focused exclusively on multifamily since 2016. And he's led MI Real Estate Investing in 14 multifamily properties across Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Texas, and Tennessee, totaling over 900 units valued at $100 million plus. He also provides independent consulting to multifamily investors and is the best-selling author of The Bottom Line Upfront About Passively Investing in Multifamily Properties. Ray, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Eileen, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Ray, can you share a little bit more about your background with us and how you got started with real estate? Sure. I was one of those folks that in the military, we moved around and throughout our career, we kind of, we have choices. We can either rent, we can buy, or we can essentially, uh, you know, a combination of whether we want to live off on post or off post, but essentially you don't own anything. You essentially live for free. If you live on post, it's one of the benefits or you get some money for renting. In our case, what we did is we bought. Everywhere we went, we bought a house and that kind of helped us you know, build our wealth as I had this full-time job. Towards the end of my career, I spent 28 years, I retired in the military. I really wanted to invest in real estate in a way that was a little bit more productive or larger scale. And so I didn't know how you could do that. And once I found out that you know, via the JOBS Act, we were able to get into what are called syndications. It allowed me to kind of look at multifamily as a choice, as a possibility for further investment. And given the fact that, you know, I'm no longer 25, it just felt like that was a better option going forward for me. But I've, I've always loved real estate. It was just a matter of, you know, what made the most sense. And I really do think that multifamily is the way to go if you want to scale in the real estate business and really grow some wealth. When you were traveling around as you were still in the military, you said you bought a house everywhere you went? We tried to. So if we were overseas, obviously we wouldn't buy a house. And so there would be times where we would not have the opportunity to buy something to live in. One of the advantages of buying a house for you to live in is that you essentially are able to use FHA or some other way to essentially buy without having to give large down payments, which makes it easy. But you also have a lot more leverage to work with. So depending on if you don't buy right, then it could be something Whereas if you try to rent that later, you're not going to make the return. Essentially, you weren't worried about making money. You were just trying to find the best house for you. I could never get my wife to live in a quad. I knew that was kind of the way, <laughs> but you know, every time I'm like, nope, I don't want to live there. Don't even think about it. You're gone way too much. I want the, you know, a nice house in a place where we're safe. And sometimes those are great things, but sometimes it wasn't a financial decision in the sense that I was looking at the property from a pure return on investment. It was more about, okay, what's the best for my family? And so that is a little bit different than when you, you're looking at a house and you, you're looking at it purely as an investor, where you're just looking at returns, right? How much can you get it for? You know, what are your costs? What's your income? And therefore, that's kind of how you decide what you want to acquire. So a little bit different there. How long 
in each place were you living there before you had to move on to the next? It depended on the assignment itself, whether it was a overseas assignment. Sometimes if it was overseas, it would be a shorter assignment, normally two years or one year, depending on what it was. Generally in the United States, what we call CONUS assignments, Continental United States assignments, it was three years, but it varied. Sometimes you thought you were going to be someplace for three years, and then all of a sudden you got a change of orders and you had to leave earlier. So what that means is if you're not prepared to take over that asset and be a landlord, you gave yourself a part-time job. You're either going to have to sell and maybe it may not be the best time to sell. So you sell it at optimal pricing or you become an accidental landlord. And if that's not something you want to do, that's why I said, I wish I could have gotten more into the passive investing on multifamily where it doesn't matter where you are. That's not your responsibility to track it. You have a, a team of folks that are there to help you with the return on investment piece that property managers don't really care about. They don't care about whether you make money or not. They just want to make sure they want it rented. They want to make sure there's a tenant there. And that's that. It's a little bit of a difference between an asset manager, whether that's a team or whether that's you as the owner versus a property manager. So after you had moved away from those places, did you end up just holding them longer term or did you end up selling them or renting them out? Yeah, I held on to them. That was deliberate. We wanted to do that. I didn't necessarily feel like that. Um, I didn't want to sell it. I wanted to accumulate wealth. But again, because we weren't always looking at the property initially from an investment standpoint, for the first year or two, we may be in the red a little bit. We weren't getting the rents that we wanted, or maybe we did get the rents, but tenant is leaves and you've got a month where you have to do some repairs. And maybe you've got a month where you're trying to bring on another tenant. And so now you've only got, you know, 10 months of income, maybe nine months of income, whereas you were factoring in that you were going to have 11 months of income, right? So that would always kind of play a part of that. But I think overall with time, you know, real estate, if we know one thing is that it just appreciates, right? It usually appreciates sometimes fast, like we've seen recently, sometimes slower, but it does generally have a good hedge against inflation no matter what. And so over time we did, we got some significant equity in the properties. And when I decided that I wanted to do multifamily, we actually divested of some of the single family assets and used those monies, then get into the multifamily space. And you also mentioned that when you discovered multifamily, it was through the Jobs Act. How did you come across that? And how did that help you understand? Or what did that do for you to get into multifamily? I think that where the Jobs Act plays a role, and I always get my actual year mixed, but I think it was right around 2013 is when the Jobs Act was voted in. And what it allowed is for non-accredited investors to invest in multifamily. So to our audience, I'm not sure how much they know about accredited versus not. Generally, the rule is $200,000 a year or more for an individual or $300,000 for a spouse for a couple or more is generally an accredited investor, or you own at least $1 million in assets, not including your primary residence. And so it really doesn't didn't allow for a lot of folks to invest in multifamily unless you wanted to try to go after the entire thing yourself, right? And that really puts it out of reach out of 99% of the population. We're just not going to be able to put in $500,000, a million dollars to buy a multifamily asset. It's just not, doesn't seem that can be reached. And that's kind of the mentality when I was looking at it at first. But when I was able to, you know, as a group, go in and invest passively in a deal, 
then it opened up a whole different way of looking at it because I no longer needed to worry about whether I lived in the right place or whether my wife felt comfortable or not. We bought, we lived where we wanted and we invested where it makes sense, right? And so that, that opened up a lot of possibilities for us that we wouldn't have. I mean, and even think about it, if they moved me to one place where, where essentially it's not a good real estate market and let's face it, I was an army guy, not every army base is in the best area, right? So do I really want to buy, and I'm not even going to name a location because I don't want to offend anybody, but there's some areas that we just like, no, that's not a place where we want to invest. But if that was our only choice, that was a tough decision versus now we can decide, okay, you know what? We're not going to buy here. Well, we're going to rent here because we want to live in a certain area, but we're going to invest in this other area. It could be completely different city, different state, because that's where our returns are going to be better. We don't have to marry the two. They can be completely separate from one another. Yeah. I love that you said, you know, live where you want, but invest where it makes sense. And so when you are looking at multifamily real estate as a whole, which market made sense for you? And how did you get started in your first deal? Yeah, no, good questions. I think that what I always look at, I look at, I call it the big three minus R. So I, I want to look at, you know, I'm looking at population growth, significant population growth over time. I'm looking at an economy that is growing. So people, money, and then kind of tied with people and money is really employment, right? So that's kind of what brings, you know, people to an area. And so those three things are kind of the big picture that I look at. And then I also take a look at the risk, which is the minus R. And there's two types of risk. There's macro risk, i.e. political risk about what kind of a state potentially uh, you're investing in, what the dynamics are. Are they pro-business, pro-tenant or in between? Because that matters to investors. Obviously, there's some places where, you know, you can put your money in there and you can bring in the best tenant. And next thing you know, you have a non-paying tenant and they're there for six months to a year and you can do nothing about it. Right. And that's just not a good investment. I mean, there's two sides of that coin. I'm not saying one is always right and the other one's always wrong. But, you know, certainly there are some places that take it to one extreme or another. And that just be difficult. Right. For from the investor standpoint, if you're if you own that property and that's the only property you own, you're not rich. You just build, you're trying to build wealth. And now you've got the system kind of working against you. So the risk of the places where you're investing are important, not just the state, but also counties. Sometimes you got to take a look at some of what the counties are doing and factor that in. And then on the micro level, from a risk perspective, what does crime look like? Because you can look at crime at a metro level and that's not going to tell you anything, right? You really got to get down to really the neighborhood, the zip code at least to get a sense of what crime is. And if you've got crime trends that are going in the wrong direction, then that's probably not where you want to invest because essentially that's going to drive people away. That's going to lower your demand. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. 
What kind of resources when you're evaluating the different markets do you utilize to help you make these decisions and to understand the market better? A lot of it is actually open source information. Like, for example, the FRED, if you go to the FRED, you can find uh, statistics within, and I forget what the FRED stands for, but it's basically the, if you just type FRED, that's kind of, uh, you know, the big demographic and financial figures where you get your federal employment, this sort of thing. And you can just type in, for a lot of people, for example, you can just type in Google, you can just type the place and just put unemployment. And it'll probably point you to the FRED where you can see what the unemployment numbers look like, not just overall, but you can actually do it by type of employment to make sure some diversification in that market. And so that's one of the places that I go. There's a whole list of places that I can give if you're going to put this on YouTube or wherever of open source places where they can get information about economy, about jobs and about crime. There's several tools that you can use to get some very basic information about crime. I mean, I think the other one that I use a lot is Neighborhood Scout is one that I use. They have some free stuff and then there's some stuff that you can pay if you want additional information and there's others. But a lot of it is is open source. We do pay, obviously, when you get into this long enough and you're looking as an active investor to get into certain markets, it is worth paying for additional data, right? And so if you're planning on investing as a passive investor, those active investors that are giving you opportunities should have the fidelity to really point and go after and tell you what's going on at the neighborhood level for these things. But I think overall, you can get some of that in very you know open source ways. And as far as your question with regards to where, one of the things that I did was I was looking at Southeast. The Southeast has always done well. One, I like that area of the country. Obviously, I'm in Florida, but you know there's a lot of people that are moving to the Southeast, right? And so I like Atlanta and Florida for those reasons. They're very pro-business, so I like that about essentially Florida for sure. They're not taxing retirees. They're looking for all kinds of ways to bring people there. And if you look at the just demographics overall, there continues to be a large swath of people that are coming down here. And these are not just college students, these are professionals. And some of them are retirees. Some of them are just moving their businesses here because there's more, it's very pro-business. So it just depends. So I like that. And I also like Texas. Texas for the very same reasons. Those are the card kind of markets that we were looking at to get started. And then once I started looking at it from a general sense, then I started looking at an active investors because I was still active duty military and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to be actively involved. But I started looking for people that were actively involved that were in the markets that I liked because my goal was always to go into it actively later. So I actually went through the process of doing that. Some people just, they find somebody they want to work with because they trust or because they looked at their YouTube or whatever the reasons, and they just invest wherever that person has deals. That's okay too, depending on how much you want to get involved and how much you know. But I didn't want to do it that way. I wanted to you know, have a good sense of where I wanted to invest. And then I started looking for people that were actively operating in those locations. So you started off as a limited partner first, investing in more experienced sponsors deals, it sounds like. I did. I did that because I, for me, one, I had a good sense of how to do the business. I just didn't understand the language. There is a little bit of different language between single family and multifamily, right? And everything's got its own little dialect that you kind of got to pick up. And so that was part of it. It's like, okay, I need to do that. The other part is that I knew that I couldn't be active at first anyway, because one of my last assignments, I was an attache in El Salvador. I was gone for two years as the army attache, and there was no way that I was going to be able to really do anything besides just place my money somewhere. And I could leave it in the bank or I could put it in a place where I could get a return. 
But what it also did for me, because my goal was always to at some point transition to active investment, was it allowed me to buy into a network. When you invest as an LP with a team, that team then the fact that you're working with them and you're getting reports will open up the aperture to what they're doing and maybe provide you some tips about you moving forward in the business. If that's what you want, you got to pick the right partner, right? Some sponsors, we call them sponsors or, or active investors are much more willing to take on students, if you will, as LPs, and then really open up the door and be transparent about what's going on behind the scenes, right? Some investors could care less. Some investors just want to report and their distributions and they don't want to know it. So it just depends. But I think those are, for me, it made sense to get in as an LP. I wanted to earn while I learned and it worked out just fine. If you need a kick in the butt though, if you're not sure, you just, okay, you're not going to do anything because you just don't feel comfortable, then it may make sense to go and be an LP, but go through maybe a mentorship route where you're actually getting someone there that can answer your questions and make sure that you take action. Because I think the biggest failure, you ask anybody, what could you have done differently? One of the things they'll tell you is, I wish I would have got started sooner. And that's just not because it's cliche. It's true. I mean, literally, if I had this knowledge a lot earlier, I would not have invested so much in single family while I was active duty. And I would have shifted a lot more of my assets early on, my funds, to multifamily investing as a passive investor. I remember we were in Mexico. I was stationed in Mexico for three years. And we had a property in north of San Antonio. And essentially the tenant was a little bit difficult and my property manager just quit. They just said, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. Not my problem. You know, it's just one property. I don't care because I don't, obviously I've got property sprinkled all over the U.S. All I have is one asset there. So I didn't have a ton of leverage with this property manager. So they're like, I don't want to deal with it. (laughs) And so I can't come back to the States to deal with it. So my wife, who also had a job, working in Mexico City out of the embassy there, had to essentially take some time off to go deal with the situation. And that was kind of my big thought at the moment. It's like, man, if if I could have done passive investing sooner, it would have been a lot less stressful as I was going through this building wealth stage, because you can build wealth either way. The question is, do you want a part-time job or do you want to passively invest? So once you started with passive investing afterwards, how did you make that transition into the active side of things? Because you said you also were able to build out your network as you were passively investing too. Absolutely. Great question. So yeah, I deliberately looked for, well, one, as I mentioned, I had some assets that I sold off. So I had some capital that I could put in place. And so what I did is I started going to networking events for multifamily investments. And I started talking to people and I was like, listen, I want to be an active investor. I've got this experience. I can do these things. Of course, I already, I do one of the things I encourage everyone to do, no matter if they're passive or active, is learn how to underwrite. Because I mean, how else are you going to know if it's a good deal or not? Are you just going to take somebody's word for it? Again, it comes down to trust. Sometimes you just trust somebody and they've made enough money for others that you trust your expertise. But if you want to be actively involved, then all active investors should know how to underwrite. It may not be what you always do or what you like to do, but understand how to do it. And so I took the time to learn the things that needed to be learned to be able to approach people to talk about what I could do for them. And that's really how you have to approach it. You don't go to a group and say, hey, I I want to be a GP. What can you do for me? They're going to be like, what are you talking about? You know, you got to tell them how you could add value to their team, to what they're trying to do. And so from my perspective, I was willing to provide risk capital on the deals. Essentially, risk capital is money that 
if the deal doesn't go through, you don't get your money back. It's the risk that active investors take that passive investors don't have to take ever. You know, their money only goes towards closing the property. If the property doesn't close, they get their money back. Where you're providing risk capital into the deal, if the property doesn't close, if during due diligence you realize that it's not a good investment, you lost your money. I mean, that's just the part of the business, right? So I was willing to expose myself that way. And I was also willing to try to help raise capital for the deals as well. I didn't know that I could raise capital. It wasn't something that I'd done. And frankly, in my military career, for the longest time, we weren't really able to use social media and kind of put ourselves out there the way you kind of have to do it if you're trying to raise capital, right? You need people to see you, to know you, so they can reach out to you, right? But I was something I was interested in. So I said, well, I don't know if I can raise capital. I can try to raise capital, but I'm also going to put my money in this deal. So if I raise no capital, you've got my money no matter what, right? So I bought into the deal with them. And so I went to enough people telling that story to that eventually somebody called me and said, hey, Ray, I remember you, you know, we met at this event and we got this opportunity in Tampa. And I said, let's take a look at it. And then I underwrote it. And I was like, yeah, I want to do it. Thanks for offering it to me. Here's what I can do. And whatever you say you're going to do, you better be able to do it. Because that's one thing in this business, no matter what, whether you're active or not, you just got to be able to deliver on what you tell. If you're an investor, you want active investors to tell you the truth and you want them to give you legitimate opportunities to earn investment. If they're giving you bad data or they just trying to inflate what those properties will do, you'll find out sooner than later. And that's the last time you work with them, right? So you have to deliver on what you're telling people. And so as soon as they gave me the opportunity, I had the money in place. I started working to the best of my ability. I told them what I couldn't do. I was still active duty military. I had dedicated times where I couldn't be involved, but I did provide my funds, right? And so that's actually when I decided to retire because I realized that I wanted to be able to raise capital. And I was working in an environment where I couldn't even have my phone with me and using government computers and where sometimes there was classified information being discussed in a secure compartmented information facility. And so I was not going to be able to do that. So I really made my choice at that point in time. I could have stayed a little bit longer or I could have retired. And when I realized that this is what I wanted to do and I couldn't do both, then it made it a simple choice for me because this is, obviously this is going to be the remainder of my career, my adult life that it's something I wanted to focus on was being an active investor. And so therefore I needed to make that move at that point. No, it's really great because you're looking at all different ways where you can add value to the other people, the other partnerships that you are trying to build up with and the networks that you are creating and expanding. And so having that conversation and trying to listen where you can fit into this piece of the puzzle really allowed you to determine where you could fit in and what value you could bring to the table and together close on deals and join in partnerships. Yes. I mean, if they're a huge team, they probably have everybody they need. So sometimes you have to know where you're going to be able to potentially add value and focus there. Because if you just go to pick an investor who's got 10 million in assets or higher, they probably already have a really dedicated team. But find somebody who's maybe getting started and that gives you a much larger opportunity or find the asset. And then now if you've got a little bit of a network and you find an asset and you're able to do that because you have the skill set to do that and the time, then you can then reach out to that network and say, hey, I think I have something. 
And then you got to be willing to give up a chunk of it, right? Because you're trying to get into the business. You can't be very demanding about how much, but most people are reasonable. They understand you're starting, you gave them something, you found something of value, then they would be willing to bring you on a team that way as well. So that's the other big way. And so how has real estate investing impacted your life, Ray? I think it's been great. I mean, to me, you know, coming out of the military, one of the things that I really liked about the military, and I did it for 28 years, so I had to like it, was the teamwork aspect, right? I mean, we had a mission and that kind of came first and you had the whole thing about serving the country, which obviously is a little bit different when you get out. That's not necessarily what you're doing unless you're going to basically retire to be a contractor or a government worker doing similar things. But when you transition completely, this is one of the places where you really can use the experience that you had from the military and put it to work because multifamily is a team sport. This is not a one person kind of operation like you can in single family. You really do need the entire team to be successful. You need people that are dedicated underwriters. You need people that are, you know, that are engaging with brokers and trying to find deals. You need people that are talking to insurance companies and doing the insurance work. You need people that are essentially, once you acquire an asset that are going to be there day in and day out to make sure that that property is running smoothly. Those are boots on the ground type people. And you need all of them. You can't do that by yourself. So it was a good place for me because I felt like I could still had the thing that I liked about working on a team. And I was able to kind of take that on out of the military and use it in this space. And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I think and it's a tough question because there's so many things that are important, but I think it started. One thing that I see all the time, it happens probably the next month. So I take calls, as you mentioned, and I do some consulting and I'll start taking some calls at the beginning of the year about people that, that say, you know what, this is a year, Ray, this is the year that I'm going to do it. Right. And I pull up my notes and I'm looking at them. It's like, I just had that conversation with you last year. <laughs> what, you know, it's what's just, changed? Yeah, you know, what's changed? And sometimes you just need to get started, which is why I say if if you need a mentorship program, because without that support network, you'll never get started, then invest in it. And they're not cheap. I mean, some of these things can be twenty five thousand or more, but they're there to handhold you through that first deal, which you wouldn't do unless you had it. Or if you are self-starter, you've got some information, you've got a little money, then maybe you can do this by yourself and you're not, you don't need that kind of handholding. You just need a boots in the door by getting in as an LP somewhere and allowing that to flourish and using that network within that, that, that syndication team to start building out your own partnerships for your deals when you become active. But one way or another, you got to take those steps and figure out who you are as a person and what you feel you need, know yourself, and then take positive steps to getting to the first deal. Then you get momentum. Then you know you can do it. Until then, it's all kind of theoretical and books and studying and this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, until you get that first one, you'll never know. So you just got to take those steps. And Ray, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? Yeah, the easiest way is through my website, mirealestate.us mirealestate.us. And then from there, they've got all my social media links. I've got blogs that I put on there that talks about all sorts of things related to multifamily investing and how to use your self-directed IRA and solo 401ks to invest and those kind of things. So that's probably the best way. And even there, you'll have a link where you can get on a call with me. I have free consultations uh, you know, for someone. If they just want to ask some questions or have some basic information they need, I'm happy to provide it. Awesome. Ray, well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. 
Uh, my pleasure. It was great. And I hope this is useful to at least one person that reaches out to you, Eileen, or, or me and, and gets into this space because there really is no better way to build generational wealth than this, in my opinion. This is one of the best ways. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.